Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The irony of preaching is that the chief of sinners is the one talking about surpassing righteousness. So as a debtor to God's grace, uh, I hope I'm in a safe crowd here. So did y'all know that there was a time in our country's history where we have modern laws and modern rules for our lives today that we are incredibly thankful for But at one time when these laws were given, they were met with extreme frustration. Did y'all know that? Now, did you know that up until January 26th of 1985, that you could get in your car and drive from Key West all the way to the Idaho and Canada border and drink the entire way? you realize you could do that? Up until January of 1985, you could get the boys together, crack a couple of cold ones, and set off from Key West all the way to Canada with no issue. That's kind of shocking, right? Some of you in here are old enough to remember when those laws were enacted. I wasn't even born yet. I was a long way off from being born. I was born in October. I'm getting old. Now, as you can imagine, though, there were some people, there was actually a large segment of our population, when they heard about these laws, they were met with frustration. They were met with, you're taking our freedom away from me. Why in the world would you ever do such a thing? Now, I'm going to show a video clip, and I'm going to show it twice. It's 27 seconds long, but you are going to be shocked, not by just the... um, the Southern dialogue and haircuts, but you are just gonna be shocked and appalled by just the logical connections between uh, drinking and driving laws and uh, freedom. So we're gonna watch it one time. Part of your brain is gonna be shocked. You're not gonna hear a thing. We're gonna roll it back so once the shock wears off, we can get my point, okay? All right, these are my people. We're not judging them. We're gonna dim the lights. And we're going to see this. Drinking and driving here is viewed by some as downright undemocratic. At least. Now, let the shock of that wear off bypass the baby in some sort of implement of danger. And let's, let's rewatch that one more time. Let's really connect the logic here. He's drinking now. Now, 
at least. Mm. Now, as 2023 people, we can be flabbergasted by the bangs, by the, by the just sheer audacity of their statements, but I would have you know we have more in common with Jimmy Joe Bob and Nancy Sue in that video than you would realize. If we don't understand that in Christ, through grace, that God's law for us is beautiful, what we'll do is when we hear of God's law, we will immediately start to assume that God is this restrictive ogre in the sky that just wants to remove all of our freedom and all of our fun. Take our text today, for example. Jesus is directly discussing the use of God's law in the life of his people and his first century Jewish audience would have heard this and they would have heard about this new kingdom Jesus is bringing in and they would have immediately thought, well, what are you gonna do with God's law? You're talking about this kingdom. You're talking about living in a certain way. You're giving us these beatitudes. What place then does God's law have in our lives moving forward? If you're sitting there, you're hearing Jesus preach, he gives a very radical answer here. And I guarantee as Jesus gave this answer, it led to just as much frustration that we saw on the screen. So it helps us ask, how does Jesus help God's law move in our life from frustration, fascism and communism into actual devotion? How does Jesus help God's law move from frustration to devotion in our lives? Jesus answers that question for us in two ways. Number one, Jesus fulfills the law for us. And number two, Jesus then promotes the law. He fulfills the law and he also promotes the law. Let's see how Jesus promotes the law in the first two verses in 17 and 18. Look at me again. It says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. This was a little dot in the Hebrew writing that separated letters so that you could understand what the text was saying. Not a dot will pass from the law until all this is accomplished. Now imagine with me, you're a first century Israelite. You are listening to Jesus preach. Your entire life from birth until death is consumed with obeying, knowing, memorizing God's law. Now, definitions matter here. What do we mean when we refer to God's law? You could understand this in various contexts, several ways. Number one, God's law could be understood as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That's also uh, called the law of Moses. You'll hear those words used interchangeably. Another way that you could understand law is through the 10 commandments and you would also be right. But notice Jesus here says that I've come to fulfill all the law and all the prophets. And so what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that I'm coming to fulfill all the books of Moses, all of the prophetic 
uh, teachings, I am coming to fulfill all these things. Now, if you hear this bold statement, you're in the audience listening, one of two conclusions happens. Jesus is either an actual madman who's drank some wine mixed with a lot of heavy metals in it and his brain's starting to go, or Jesus is actually the Messiah. You can't have Jesus anymore as just some good moral teacher. Jesus is either a madman or he's the actual Messiah. Now, we need to add another layer of context as we start to see what Jesus has fulfilled. Inside of God's law, you have categories of laws, right? Categories, put on your thinking cap with me, stay with me for a moment. You had civil laws, you had ceremonial laws, and you had moral laws. Civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. Civil laws are the laws that governed Israel's day-to-day life. Uh, An example of those are property or boundary laws that you would have seen in Deuteronomy 19. Those are civil laws. They govern the theocracy of Israel. Then inside of the theocracy, they had laws uh, telling Israel how to worship correctly. These are ceremonial laws. These are laws concerning like Leviticus 1 when it talks about burnt offerings. A lot of these, we just kind of breeze through them and we're like, man, I don't know the significance. All this was for God's people to be consumed with who God is in their daily action. Then you had the moral law. God's moral law applies to Israel, but also applies to the world. This moral law is what would we, what would we also call the Ten Commandments. Now, three types of law. I promise I'm getting somewhere with this. Inside of the moral law, there's three uses of the Ten Commandments. Three uses. God's Ten Commandments reveal our sin and crush us. Then they point us to Jesus, and then after we have faith, they become a light to our path. We are going to see how Jesus fulfills these laws and allows the law to turn into into a light for our path. This is where we're going. So how did Jesus fulfill all of these things? How did he do these things? Now, If we think about the gospel, if we think about the good news, a lot of times we start with Jesus's death. We start with the death, and that is very important. Jesus on the cross is very important. Don't walk away here uh, thinking that I don't think that is super important. But what makes his death on the cross so powerful is the flawless and perfect and sinless life that he lived. Think about Jesus's life. He lived just like us, with hunger, with pain, with happiness, with sadness, with betrayal, on and on. And he did that without sin, obeying all these civil, ceremonial, and moral laws to a perfect T inside and outside without sinning once. This is what makes the death on the cross so significant. He's not dying for his own sins. His perfect life is lived out for those who would trust in him. Paul picks up on this in Romans 3, 19 and 20. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by the works of the law, no human will be justified in a sight. Justification is a phrase that means God sees you through faith just as though you would never sin. One time credited, guiltless, righteous, flawless, perfect, right? Justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, these first century Israelites, these Jews that were acquainted with the Old Testament, they were trying to live out perfect lives with zeal to earn their righteousness. But the law never had the ability to change a person's heart. The laws that were extensive that we read over and over and just can't fathom following those perfectly, they were never meant to change you, but to crush you into looking for a solution. That's why they killed animals all the time, over and over. They realized they weren't doing this perfect, so they had all these repeated sacrifice. This is why Jesus' death takes on much more significance. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats and rams anymore because a once perfect sacrifice has been crucified for sinners, and that was Jesus. This is why church, the gospel can be good news. Jesus didn't just die. Jesus lived perfectly for you. He was mocked for you. All the times where you're scared to live out your faith and being mocked, Jesus did that for you. All the times where you don't stand up for righteousness, Jesus died for that. He was crucified, tortured. He was starved and betrayed. All of it without sinning once, just for us to bear the curse of the law and its condemnation for us. You see, without his spotless, sinless life, his death wouldn't be the sacrifice that was satisfactory for our sin. But because of his perfect life, he's got room to take all of our individual sins on himself and absorb all of the wrath of God like a giant sponge. And then in faith, he wrings out nothing but forgiveness over all of us. Now, you would think this good news would compel the world to say, finally, even after studying this text, I come back to Jesus and I'm like, thank you, Lord, that Jesus did this. Thank you, Jesus. You would think this good news would change the absolute world to come running to Jesus for faith and forgiveness. Sadly, the first century Jews, these scribes and Pharisees we hear about, they created laws on top of laws and all these safe boundaries to keep them from even coming close to breaking all of these different laws, so much so that they had over 600 man-made laws to keep them from breaking God's law. The irony of it was they were breaking the intent of the law altogether, which is to know God who is holy and loving. They had loophole after loophole to follow the letter of the law, but they missed entirely the giver of the law. And that happens to this day. That happens to this day. Have y'all ever heard of a Jewish Aruv? Aruv, I sound like Jimmy Joe Bob on the screen, but an Aruv is spelled E-R-U-V. This is a Jewish Aruv. And what this is, is an invisible fishing line that stretches across metropolitan cities 
so that Jews do not break one of their Sabbath laws called carrying. One of the things that Jews can't do on their Sabbath is carry anything outside of their homes. Now, you would think at some point being acquainted with the Old Testament, even that Ezekiel passage we read, they were thinking, man, I wonder if somebody's already carried something for me so that I can live in freedom, but they don't. The rabbis realized how prohibitive carrying something outside of your home and being restricted to doing that, how problematic that is. So they create loopholes, literally a loop around cities to create these holy spaces so these Orthodox Jews, they can escape the intent of the law and create some sort of man-made law that they can fulfill. Look at this picture of Manhattan. Can y'all see that outline? This is the Manhattan A-Roof. It's the most expensive one in the world. It costs over $100,000 a year. And one rabbi drives before the Sabbath, drives this whole area to make sure that there's not one spot where this fishing line is down. And if it is, he contacts city maintenance and they put this A-Roof back in place. Now, this is a fascinating diagnostic of sinful ingenuity. This is a brilliant law-keeping, in theory, loophole-following heart that's bent on doing things the right way and missing the heart of God altogether. These Jewish observers of our time are just as guilty as the scribes and Pharisees were in Jesus' day. They had this massive zeal to keep the law, right? When, when girls were being raised inside of first century Judaism, the scribes and Pharisees were the ones you wanted your daughter to marry. They had such a zeal to keep the law, but they had no wisdom to understand what the law was actually intended to do. This reminds us of how zeal without wisdom is deadly, right? Another way to say that is love without holiness is a disease. Think about getting a plant and loving that plant so much you wanna water it all the time and you give it so much water, what's gonna happen to that plant? It's gonna die, right? You can love something to death. You can have zeal without wisdom and be very, very destructive. You see, all of this frustration of how prohibitive the law was, it didn't drive them to Jesus. It didn't drive them to trust in him, but it drove them deeper into legalistic loopholes and they missed God completely. Now, if we aren't careful, we can be doubly worse than them. We can know the gospel and still add on legal ramifications for religious performance and be in worse shape than them. We're gonna get to that in a minute. But we asked, how does God's law move in our lives from frustration to devotion? Number one, foundationally, we have to get that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. But secondly, because Jesus fulfilled the law, he can then promote the law in its right understanding. All right, let's look at that in our final point in 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, this is shocking, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, at this point, Jesus talks about fulfilling all of these laws and naturally you would think freedom. Finally, Jesus has fulfilled all these things. I'm free. I have no constraints. I have no laws binding me. I am free to do whatever I want to whenever I want to, to a certain extent. Freedom is only free when you use your freedom in the context of how you were created to have freedom in. Think about uh, this weekend, the Blue Angels are flying all across Jacksonville. When we see those airplanes flying, that is American freedom. It makes me wanna salute, say the Pledge of Allegiance makes me proud to be an American, right? But there's another type of freedom exhibited by these pilots. Imagine the pilot says, I'm free to fly these planes however I want to outside of the bounds of physics, gravity, and the engineering ramifications and design of these aircrafts. I'm just gonna do me and be free and fly however I want to. What do you think would happen to that aircraft if it's flown against the laws of physics, gravity, and its engineering boundaries? We've got some pilots here. You crash that thing. It will crash and burn, boom, all day. That's not freedom, that's destruction, right? The same way it is with us. We flourish as humanity when we live inside of the confines of how we were created to enjoy this life and enjoy God. This is what Jesus means in these verses. He didn't come to get rid of these laws. These are for our flourishing. These are for how we know God and love God. But Jesus turns these moral laws into a path for our lives. And by grace, through faith in Jesus, God's law no longer oppresses us. It's no longer pointing out our failures. It's no longer pointing out how far we fall short of the glory of God. But in Jesus, we realize he said it's finished on the cross. We don't have to earn God's love. His righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him, not just in his death, but his perfect life. And when you get this, you will have freedom. You will have joy to see God's law and follow it because you're following your savior. This text, it is shocking, but it's not new. We're just understanding it in light of Jesus. Listen to Ezekiel 26. It says, and I will put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is confirming this text. In John 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees or know him, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be with you. You see, because Jesus fulfills this law and he died in our place at the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he sends his spirit to live in you. He sends his spirit to take up residence in you and you get a new lens and new heart to see and view things. You have new motivations. 
You have a new desire and it compels you to love like Jesus did. And you need to remember that Jesus doesn't call you to do anything he hasn't already done and accomplished. So as hard as life is following Jesus, remember everything happens to you. And you've heard me say this a thousand times. Nothing happens to you that hasn't already passed through the nail pierced hands of Jesus. So you don't need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps anymore. You just need to cling to his perfect life on your behalf and trust that everything that's happening to you is making you look more like Jesus because these laws were given out of love and they compel you to love from the inside out. The Pharisees see the law as working from the outside in. Somehow if I do greater exterior actions, my interior would be better. The old King James version called these whitewashed tombs sepulchers, which is a really fun name for a metal band. In the middle of all this though, Jesus cares about the heart. Listen to the, the, the intent of the law when Jesus was quizzed on which law is the best. Listen to this from Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love. You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. You see, once we understand Jesus fulfilling the law for him dying for us and we being saved by grace through faith, that same grace that saves us is the one that sustains us. And it's the one that lets the law be a light for our path. And when we fail, when we fall off of that path, it's grace that sustains us and brings us back on track. This is why we can love boldly, why we can forgive boldly, why we can repent quickly. Because Jesus is our model. And if he can forgive us for our wretchedness, then we can forgive others around us that mess up the same way. Now, I'm not trying to get messy here. Not trying to get messy. But we can have zeal without wisdom, even being fully regenerate, Jesus-loving Christians. We can have zeal without wisdom and that little law-keeping Pharisee can jump up in our lives and we can get into really nasty situations really quickly. Let's think of some ways where even as Jesus-loving Christians, we can lack wisdom and turn into Pharisees, right? I've been around the block long enough, and I haven't encountered it in this church, but we know what season's upon us. It's spooky season, right? It's Halloween. I have heard that there are people who say that you cannot participate in trick-or-treating and be Christian at the exact same time, <gasps> right? Now, let's add some layers here. If you feel in your spirit and your conscience trusting in Jesus that you can't participate in Halloween, then follow your conscience. I'm not here to argue with you but you do not get to sit in the judgment seat and cast laws on other Christians saying that you can't be a Christian in trick or treat. 
I personally have no issue with dressing my children up as Paw Patrol or Jaguars football players and letting them go trick or treat and get candy. I love going out and meeting my neighbors and seeing their outfits and giving out full size candy bars. Nobody does that. But um, I really enjoy Halloween, right? There's also people that feel in their conscience, you can't do that and be Christian. You can keep that to yourself and have good conversations about it, but you don't get the ability to say that you are not, your religious preferences somehow make somebody less Christian. Does that make sense? I've got freedom in Jesus to be with my kids, to be with my church community and go do Halloween to the glory of the Lord, all right? I may have not frustrated y'all with that one, but this one might get a little bit more frustrating. Not only do we create little laws on top of God's laws to be really good Christians, one of the, the kind of things, I didn't become a Christian until about 23, so I'm 31 right now. I'm just kidding, I'm almost 40. Um, this always confused me as a kid. Uh, it still confuses me as a Christian adult man. Um, we have this superstition that we can't take a bite of food until we've prayed correctly. I've sat at many a table and I've just dived in and somebody being like, pastor, you better pray for that meal before you eat. And I'm like, why? Is, did, what, did, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Well, you need to bless that food and thank God for it before you eat. Well, yeah. Is there any chance that I can go to the restaurant having sat through a sermon and then be really hungry, surrounded by my family and friends, and that plate of biscuits and gravy hits the table, and that half-sweet, half-unsweet tea with the lemon just right hits, and I can smell that and look at my beautiful family and friends around me and have that first bite and say, thank you, Jesus. Maybe not even say it, just think it. Just say, thank you, Jesus. Like, look how blessed I am. Is that not equally as beautiful and as honest and a Christ-honoring prayer as me sitting down and telling all the kids to be quiet and close your eyes and let me say the same prayer I say every day before every meal? I'm not saying you're wrong for that, but what I am saying is have some freedom with somebody else to, to be able to eat that biscuit and gravy and say, thank you, Jesus. Man, this is delicious, right? God wants our hearts, church. He doesn't need your religious performance. He doesn't need you to be good. Jesus can make a straight line with a crooked stick, but what he wants is our hearts. And once he has your hearts, you will be surprised by the shocking obedience that comes out of you once you realize how loved you are. Once you realize how proud God is of you, once you realize that God, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your failures. He sees his son hanging in your place and his righteous perfection imputed to your account and then sees you as loving and beautiful and whole. And his gift, I mean, he loves you when you get that, what the law turns into is this is how I live like family to God. These are just family rules. He's not gonna kick me out of the family when I fail, but I can ask for forgiveness. And I wanna follow the family rules because they're bound in love in Jesus. You see, deep down, we really want a checklist of things to do because inside, we still don't really get Jesus says it's finished. 
We want a checklist. Tell me what to do. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm this. All the time, tell me. He already says it in his word. Come to his word, find his love and what he says about you there and watch your heart transformed slowly. Jesus wants you to be full of grace. Jesus wants you to be full of mercy because it's there where you start to understand the love of the Father. It's there where you start to love your neighbor better. It's there where the inside of your thoughts and emotions and will starts to change because you realize you're a work in progress. Once you get grace, you can look around and say, these 10 commandments reveal that I'm a mess. Thank God Jesus died for me. Hey, you're a mess too, welcome to the party. It makes us the most loving. It makes us the most charitable, but we have to get what Jesus did for us first. We follow our Savior's lead. And that's where true freedom is found. Now, this freedom leads to a deep devotion because we realize we're no longer failures, but we're family. And when we get that, that lens starts to change everything that we see and all of our experiences run through that lens. Uh, a pastor shares a story, not allowed to share their family's name because it's a, it's a very true story, not that we tell fake stories when we preach, but just uh, can't share this family's name. Uh, but he was sharing one time, his wife got a call from his son Mark's third grade teacher. Kid's nine years old in third grade, gets a call from the teacher in the middle of the day. The teacher says, hey, uh, your son Mark did something today in school, something that I've never seen in my entire life and we need to talk about it. Now, if you're a parent and you get that call from the school, your immediate question is like, oh no. What did he do or destroy or punch, all right? Now, getting concerned, teacher continues. The teacher shares that each year they have this creative writing assignment where they talk about the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant uh, works hard all summer long, builds up food in their storehouses, and then the grasshopper just uh, flies and has fun and plays all summer. Winter hits, the ant has this storehouse full of food. The grasshopper has none. And the grasshopper comes to the ant and says, can you please share with me? The point of the assignment is for each child to finish that story. Teacher says, in all of my years, a number of stories actually end in a couple of, one or two ways. Number one, the ant shares some of the food with the grasshopper. They all make it through the winter, but they're really starved and famished, right? Everybody eats, but not to their full. That's a pretty standard response. Secondly, another response was the ant tells the grasshopper to go away. I worked hard all summer and you're not gonna get any and the grasshopper dies. So when she says, finish the story, little Mark raises his hand. He says, instead of writing, can I draw a picture? And she says, well, first you need to finish the story. Then you can draw a picture. This is how Mark concluded his picture. He's uh, the story. He said, so the ant gave all of his food to the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived through the winter and the ant died. At the end of his story, at the sheet of the paper, Mark drew three little crosses. 
The reason why I share that story with you is this summarizes exactly from a nine-year-old what the law does for the Christian, for those who trust in Jesus. We get the links the Savior went through to save us. And because he loved us so much to lay his life down, we want to do that and model that everywhere else we go. When you realize that Christ's life, death, and resurrection happened for you, personally, this is going to snatch you from the chains of hell and the law's condemnation. And you're gonna get a new heart with new affections that draws you to follow your sacrificial savior with radical obedience in a very ordinary life. Not out of earning God's love, but out of responding to God's love seen in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that will, regardless of how you try to promote this or fight against it, it will promote in you joyful obedience and loving devotion. Let's pray. Father, as the chief of sinners, Lord, it is uh, quite hilarious that you have me preaching this sermon. Um, Father, I'm a debtor of your grace. I have failed you even this morning in more ways than I can count, Father, but I want to serve you. And Father, that's the story of your church. Father, for those who trust you, we want to serve you. We want to love you, but we fail regularly. Would you help us to be quick repenters? Would you help us to be full of joy? Would we be quick to lay down our lives, our time, talent, offering for other people? Would we be quick to serve and count ourselves less so that you can be made much of? Would we be consumed with knowing you, Jesus, in everything that we do, thought, word, and deed? Would we continue to follow you imperfectly and would you mold us more and more into your image? So by the time we're on death's door meeting you, people say Jesus did a work in them. Would you get all the glory? Would this world be a better place because of you? We pray all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.